Welcome to Movement Scenes and Genres, or as I keep trying to call it, MSG10, um, where we invite a guest on to talk us through a movement, a scene, or a genre in music, either really vague or really specific, and they choose 10 songs to go along with that. Um, if you're listening on a normal pod player, that will be linked in a Spotify playlist where possible, and the best way to listen to it is at infrequency.co.uk, which is our home where you can stream the episode uh, legally with all the songs embedded uh, or on our Mixcloud, which is mixcloud.com slash tempfans, uh, where you can do that, but also support this show and our sister show, Temporary Fandoms, or just, just go to the website. And I've probably forgotten something, but there's lots of episodes of this covering, I don't know, jazz, funk, noise rock, uh, 80s indie, um, a bit of goth punk, um, Riot Girl, something I've been getting, lots and lots of stuff. Um, that's my admin done. Um, check out the links, blah, 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 blah. Today's guest, um, if you listen to our sister podcast um, and you... Uh, temporary fandoms and you go back to the summer of last year um he brought us bjork well not literally but Alas, took no, us through the, the albums <laughs> took us through the albums of bjork um and well i had this huge introduction uh, uh, uh i was going to use but then you don't do half of it anymore so what i'm <laughs> going to say is since i last spoke to you you've become a doctor i have indeed yeah i'm officially not in a in any kind of qualified medical sense i'm no use to anyone um, but yeah, but I'm a, a doctor in a doctor in what? Um, I'm kind of a, sort of in sociomusicology, somewhere around there, maybe. Perfect. Maybe. So we have Doctor Doctor Liam Maloney joining us today. Hello, Liam. Hello. It's really nice to be back. It feels yeah, I'm flashing back to last summer and the kind of scorching heat and sweating in this bedroom when we were recording <laughs> over Zoom. Yeah, so um, if you want to listen to to Liam talk us through talk you through um, the entire career of Bjork, again in frequency.co.uk, just type in Bjork and you'll find them on there. Um, okay, this is the point where I ask the guest um, what we're doing, and usually I I kind of know because yeah, we've, I've prepared. Uh, this time I've looked at the list you sent through, and I don't even know what to call this episode. What are we doing? Well, I, I'll be honest. I was when you when you kind of threw this at me, I was so indecisive. I was like, I could do this, I could do that. Well, I could I could do that little club that happened, you know, for seven years there. But um, I thought I would bring you this uh, introduction to kind of what we're going to chat about today, what we're going to dive into, um, and this comes from the Penguin Encyclopedia of Popular Music, so like a kids' book essentially, Ooh. or like you know, <laughs> standard reference text for um, teenagers doing their um, GCSEs or whatever it is. And this is from. Uh, written by a guy called Donald Clark, who's now like perhaps in my eyes public enemy number one, or should be public enemy number one. Um, and uh, see if you can guess what we're going to dive into. He said it is a fad of the seventies with a profound and unfortunate influence on popular music, because the main thing was the thump thump beat. Other values could be ignored. Producers used drum machines, synthesizers, and other gimmicks at the expense of musical values. So really, you know, objective, rounded, descriptive work there from Donald Clark. What do you reckon? Is it D-I-S-E-O? It is the dreaded D-I-S-C-O, which is also a dreadful song. Um, but yeah, we're going to dive into disco. And I feel like I need to constantly preach the gospel and try and rehabilitate disco in many people's eyes. It's, it's not as perhaps as maligned as it once was, but I still feel like I need to get a lot of people... On, on the funk train, I suppose. <laughs> and, and before people stop listening, um, it's not ABBA. We're not playing ABBA. There will be... Uh, it's none of that. No. <laughs> there'll be no ABBA. There'll be no, I don't know, Ottawan. No bloody... Who else is dreadful? Night on Night on Disco Mountain, wasn't that one of the ones? Oh, no, there'll be no Miko Star Wars theme, although it's a lovely novelty. No Bee Gees. None of the crap or the absolute, you know, bargain bin turgid horror that you think of when you think of like a best disco 
Um, as far as I'm concerned, most of that stuff isn't disco. It's kind of novelty songs. ABBA should have been sued for a cultural appropriation. Like Dancing Queen is a lot of white, straight people pretending that they're not that. Um, it's it's really problematic. At least like when Madonna did Vogue and kind of ripped off another black dance music scene, at least she was in the same city that it was happening at. You know, like <laughs> and hanging out with you know, Mark Kamins and, and Jelly Bean and stuff. Whereas ABBA didn't know. No, sorry. You've 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 said that so, word and it's red rag to a bull. <laughs> so um, we've we've mentioned what it's not, and we will come back to what it's not later. But what is it? What I mean, what is disco then? Oh, that's a really good question. It's. Uh... I was obviously going to ask you this. Yeah, um, I, th- I think so. You can point at disco, and you can kind of go, "Oh, it's the you know this drum pattern, and it's these strings," and we're kind of going to get into that a little bit later, I think. But the thing that for me, disco is this kind of dramatic, joyous, bittersweet, melancholic, huge expression of like freedom and emancipation, and it's tied up with bits of civil rights struggle and kind of gay rights and all of that stuff, and it is just the the most joyful thing I can possibly think of. And and for me, that's kind of what disco biases us when you kind of get down to the definition. So so if I try to if I try to, to, to shoehorn it in to the podcast title, is it a movement to see in a genre or is it all three? Oh, great question. Well, today we're kind of going to do all three. We're very much looking at like the New York scene in a load of detail. Um, but yeah, it is a genre. But arguably there's kind of like a deeper movement underneath it and a movement that's still going on kind of today potentially there's yeah it, it's everything you want in msg10 and i'm gonna go with you on the on the uh acronym as well <laughs> i like it i really I, I, it was going to be called msg but there was a pod called msg and i was oh. like oh. msg10 so I was like, msg10 yeah i'm done with it <laughs> um okay so i mean by the time you've after you've already clicked on this and you're starting to listen, it's either called Disco or New York Disco or, or, or whatever we've decided to call it by the end of it. But essentially, it's the majority of this is a trip through uh, and the stories around uh, mainly 1970s New York Disco, right? Maybe. It goes a May- bit further. Well, we'll find out later. It might go a bit further. Okay, well, when you sent me through the list of songs, um, I had to listen, not to all of them, because some of them are really long i listened to bits of bobs a lot of this was not what i would have imagined disco to be but then the second i thought about it it's exactly what i would have imagined was played in disco clubs at the time and i just suddenly realized that my idea of what disco was was nonsensical i was thinking of uh, all the synths and all the late 70s stuff but obviously the rise of this would have been early 70s and early 70s with soul and and, and, and whatnot um Let's get started on the first choice. Okay. Um, what is your first choice and why? Um, I'll do the why first. Okay. And it's partly to kind of say what you just said. It's about the fact that, you know, disco doesn't just like jump into the world as this like fully formed monster that's about to take on the chart. It's something a bit more subtle than that. And there's kind of two places where it starts. It either starts in you know, 1969 and kind of the the June of 69 with the Stonewall uprising and, you know, this idea of, you know, kind of gay emancipation and freedom and all that stuff kicking off. Or it starts, you know, eight months later in early 20, uh, not 20, gosh, in early <laughs> 1970. Um, it's actually uh, Valentine's Day, 1970. It's probably kind of the birth of disco when... Arguably one of the first DJs, not the first, but one of the most important DJs ever, a guy called David Mancuso, opens up his apartment in uh, on Broadway at 647 Broadway and throws a party and he calls it Love Saves the Day. He calls his apartment The Loft. And I think that's the birth of clubbing. I think you can kind of put the birth of clubbing down to that one moment in that one place on that day. Oh, wow. And I think that is kind of where the seeds of disco sort of get sown. And so what I picked was uh, a track that actually came out a couple of years later, but was still one of like Mancuso's favorites and would always come around at Loft Pies. And it's uh, Rain by Dorothy Morrison. It's 1972 and it's released on Electra. And it's this kind of huge, funky, gospel, joyous exclamation. And, you know, if we kind of talk about what we're talking about with this idea of it being about freedom and joy and fun and all of that stuff, 
this is a great example of that. This kind of big, exuberant shout as a kind of a way that disco starts to kind of kick down the doors a little bit. Okay, I, I know, and um, well, I'm obviously going to, I'm only going to say this this one time later on in the episode. I'm not going to repeat it. If you're listening on our website in frequency.go.uk or our Mixcloud, that's mixcloud.com slash tempfans, you are now going to hear said track. If not, you're going to be back in about five seconds. I, I mean, I, mainly because I definitely don't want to skip over it, um, but you mentioned before that last track, uh, there were a couple of places where disco sort of started, and one was sort of at the end, you know, uh, at the end of Stonewall, Stonewall Rising, um, which probably needs a bit more of context and why that could have influenced an entire mu- musical genre. Okay, so um, the Stonewall Uprising, people used to call it a riot, but now we call it an uprising, kind of happens in the in New York, down in the village, at a little bar called Stonewall, and it happens on the 28th and 29th of June in 69. I think those are the dates, if not, bad guy. Um, and obviously we're in like the middle of 1969. It's kind of the moon landings happen, I think, a week later. Than this, we've got Woodstock happening. You've got the Harlem Cultural Festival happening, which you know we'd been forgotten about until probably two years ago. Um, if you've not seen that documentary, it's spectacular, by the way. Summer of Soul. Oh, so- Summer of Soul. Oh, oh yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I, that should be like required watching for everyone, I think. Um, but you also yeah, get this Woodstock crap. Yeah, <laughs> the more interesting one is Altamont as well, like the Altamont Speedway gig. Yeah. Like all this stuff is kind of happening and kind of coalescing in '69. It's this kind of real time of what people. Uh, so gay people finally get sick of being treated like shit, and they end up being um, harassed by police again and again and again to the extent that the patrons in the Stonewall Bar, you know, refuse to show their genitals to make sure that the police are sure of what uh, gender they are. They're sick of having their bars raided. They're sick of uh, being sent to jail, all of this stuff. And so they kind of rebel against it and it turns into a kind of riot up and down the street. The police ended up barricading themselves in the uh, pub and then the whole thing kind of shakes out that the year after Stonewall happens, you get the very first gay pride parade, which is, you know, 1970. And it's the point where we start to see some of the laws around kind of homosexuality start to kind of dissolve a little bit. We start to get um, a bit more kind of freedom in terms of what people are allowed to do, who people are allowed to dance with as well, because you weren't allowed to dance Wait, with... Wait, what? Yeah, you weren't allowed to dance with someone of the same gender as you. And there was this whole other stuff. Yeah, you weren't allowed to wear any clothing that wasn't assigned to your gender because of this thing called the masquerade law. Um, they use this other kind of set of laws called um, the cabaret laws to really quash all of this stuff. It was just kind of like systematically embedded homophobia and racism in New York and across most, you know, um, US cities at that point anyway. And so Woodstock is kind of the thing that allows these little clubs like David Mancuso's Loft and people who begin to emulate Mancuso's Loft, like Nicky Ciano at the gallery. Stonewall is the thing that sort of lets the Let's the cat out of the bag, I suppose. It's the kind of first little marble push that ends up with Indiana Jones legging it out of homophobia. If that's that's a weird metaphor. <laughs> What's the name of those machines? The sort of something something machine where you put a ball and it knocks a thing and it knocks a thing and oh, it knocks uh, a thing. Rube Goldberg, something like that. Rube Goldberg or the game Mousetrap. Either of those two. Yeah. Now I've got now in my head the Stonewall Uprising is the is that first moment in the. Game of Mousetrap. Precisely. And it's also coming at a moment where, you know, the hippie thing is happening, the rock thing is really taking off, psychedelia is a thing. And so all of these influences kind of start to kind of mingle by the time you get to Mancuso and kind of the people who are copying Mancuso. Um, I actually spoke to uh, Bill Brewster a while back, um, the guy who wrote uh, Last Night at DJ Saved My Life and, you know, great books from him. He's kind of, he tried to explain what the loft sort of atmosphere was and he describes it as this thing about kind of trying to all live in harmony irrespective of like race and gender and all that stuff and like dancing together it's all about free love and maybe like getting on a spaceship and going to a different planet to hang out like it's sort of that in a yeah that's kind of the way that brewster went for it yeah you you had me at dancing in a loft all together 
And you lost me at getting in a spaceship <laughs> and free love. <laughs> well, this kind of, this sort of, um, what would you say? This kind of ethos starts to take hold. And so, you know, uh, very soon, Nicky Siano opens the gallery. Um, if you'd talk to Siano, you know, you'd think he'd invented music. But yeah, he's emulating what Mancuso is doing. But what's actually really cool is um, this is kind of one of the most important moments in music ever when Mancuso opens Loft and then the gallery opens later. Um, have you, do you know about who was at the gallery? No. It's really cool. I, I mean, I mean, let's rephrase that. Let's rephrase that. Yeah, of course I do. But just for our <laughs> listeners, could you please, could you please explain? <laughs> well, like, um, so they used to just like hire people to help, you know, make the party happen and, and would, you know, get people who would come and set up all the tables with all the punch and stuff and all the food and all the drinks. They'd help people, people who come and rig the light and people who just blow up balloons. And two of the people they got blowing up balloons were Larry Levan and Frankie Knuckles. And so that's where Frankie wow. Knuckles and Larry Levan learn to DJ. Without Ciano, you don't get house music. And without Mancuso, you don't get Ciano. And without Stonewall, you don't get Mancuso. So it's this kind of, like say that, kind of little marble run where everything okay. starts from okay. this one little moment. Okay, so let's let's move on to your second choice here. Sorry, yeah, we'll and... ramp forever if you're not careful. <laughs> No, 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 no. Um, and people who have listened to this pod will realize that they are of varying lengths, usually because either I can't, I can't stop people talking, or as with one guest, um, they had to go, they had their their lunch break, and that was it. All right. Um, <laughs> so, "Girl, You Need a Change of Mind" by Eddie Kendricks. Yet another one of the ten tracks I had never heard before you sent them through. Um, I'm going to do this. What? Why? What? Why? What? Why? <laughs> Um, so Kendrick's released this again in, is it 72 this comes out, I think? 72? Yeah, 72 on Tamla. Obviously, Kendrick's had been in The Temptations originally, and then this is on his second solo album. The, the Temps had only split about 18 months before. Um, and the reason I'm playing this is because this is probably the first time you get a four-to-the-floor kick drum in any of this kind of music. You get this moment of doof, 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 right in the middle of this track. And whilst you probably heard that as a kind of concept, maybe in the odd place, the probably the only place you'd probably heard it is in church. Because this whole thing kind of comes from Eddie Kendrick's um, kind of church background. It comes from kind of the black or African American kind of Pentecostal gospel church. Um, and what you'll find is when you kind of jump into this track, is halfway through the whole thing drops out everything disappears and you just end up with this kick drum just pounding away at the bottom. And then the instruments kind of build up like layer after layer, you get like the bass and then you get the guitar and you get some percussion. And that is what we kind of used to know was the gospel break. It was something that came directly out of gospel. Um, but it becomes part of disco's musical language, I suppose. And to the point where we start to refer to it as the disco break, when it drops down like that and builds back up. And I thought it was really cool that you can actually kind of pinpoint a moment where you get that first initial kind of pounding kick drum. You know, the thing that will go on in like, what, uh, 12 years after this, you get it at the birth of house music, then you get it in techno and just kind of spirals out from this point. So, yeah, that's this is maybe the birth of the kick drum. So um, you you mentioned there was the gospel break, the disco break, and it sort of it came down and started to come back up. Um, and a lot of these early tracks are sound more like what I would have imagined soul to be. You play them to me, I, I shove them in the, in, a, in, a, in the soul bucket uh, for want of a better thing. Um, when does disco become disco, or does disco ever become disco as what I think disco is? So, like, the difference at the start of this is before we like we don't even call it disco yet. Really, it doesn't have a name that just kind of develops as a you know disco is the club, uh, the music that gets played at the kind of discotheque club sort of thing. You know, the disc library, which is essentially what it was. Um, like all the stuff that's coming out of like the gallery and the loft and all these early clubs that are kind of cropping up around New York, primarily kind of catering to you know like really diverse, like racially diverse and kind of sexually diverse kind of uh, scenes. All the music that's coming out there is like, as you say, soul in the soul bucket. I don't know why, but the soul bucket sounds disgusting. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> have a rummage. Have a rummage through the soul bucket. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's the soul stuff. It's funk. It's bits of gospel and R and B, and that's the kind of stuff that's sort of in the melting pot of the time. And then probably seventy three is the first time we get something that you can kind of identify as like, oh, that kind of sounds like disco. It's got you know those big sort of Philly strings on it. It's got that pounding kick drum again. It's got really funky bass stuff. It's got big like histrionic vocals, um, and it's and this kind of goes back to what I was saying at the start. Maybe this is the thing that kind of really draws me to disco. It's this sort of bittersweet unctuousness and like generosity, just like the big, huge production values. Everything's so like glossy and shiny, but it's also really dramatic, a little bit campy. But like, there's a real core of proper melancholy in it as well. Like, if you're not dancing, you're weeping. Well, one of the things you just said, which then you almost double down on by accident, is about the strings. For me, if I had to pick a genre, whatever of music that was more likely to have strings in, <laughs> it's probably disco. I mean, yes, you know, Radiohead have probably had a, ba- a symphony behind them on some tracks, etc. But in terms of just a couple of strings up front and center as part of the tune, for me, that's very disco. Absolutely. And it's coming out of like, it all comes out of Philadelphia. It all comes from like Philly Records, Philly International, and like Gamble and Huff and, you know, um, McFadden and that lot. Like, and just writing these big, luscious, kind of really kind of agile string parts and coming up with all these like disco falls, you know, where it kind of does those stabs. Like, that's disco. And so that's why I kind of chose this track, actually, because this is, um, I suppose I should actually say the name of it, shouldn't I? Um, probably, probably a good time as yeah, any. <laughs> let's, let's reveal the secret. Um, so it's Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, um, and it's The Love I Lost. And this is 1973, released on Philly International. Um, yeah. Harold Melvin and the Blue Lotes, The Love I Lost, featuring, never forget the feature, featuring Teddy Bendegrat. I love a featuring. Well, when it was released, what, he when, wasn't a featured artist. <gasps> yeah, this is before oh, Teddy oh, really? gets really was he big, like yeah. To... So he was some nobody. A little bit, I think. And then they realized he was big, and they just wrote F-E-A-T, Teddy. Yeah, I think that's what brackets. kind of happened after the fact. Yeah. Or maybe it's like some weird contractual thing, I don't know. Well, I love listening to weird contractual things. One of the things I was going to pull you up on when you sent me through this list was how long, <laughs> how long every track seemed to be. I was going eight minutes, nine minutes, seven minutes. Jesus Christ, Liam! I mean, everything is long, and but then I kind of realizing that's sort of the point because this is the birth of extended extended plays. God, I'm. Hey, kids, an extended play was when you had a normal song, and on the B-side, they made it a little bit longer. Uh, extended plays, 12 inches, remixing, you know, stuff like that, right? This is this is where it came out of. Absolutely, and and that's kind of our, our next little stop, actually. So um, I'll probably tell you what the track is first. It's um, The next thing we're going to talk about is Double Exposure's 10%, but particularly um, the Walter Gibbons remix of it. And now I've said that, let's wind back. <laughs> So the 12-inch is essentially invented for disco at this point. Um, I can get into the really dweeby kind of things about it, but the fact that you have a 12-inch record with only one track on it, even though it's, yeah, a ridiculously long track, means that the grooves can be wider, you can get better bass response, it doesn't skip as easy, so it's like perfect for um, quite an agile kind of dance floor or you know a, a kind of busy room and a DJ doing a lot of work. No, because this is the birth of mixing, really. Oh, okay. So this is interesting because on on um, last month's temporary fandoms, we talked about buzzcocks and briefly came up the idea of you know the, the more you put on one side of vinyl, the less essentially the quality. Is. Absolutely. But it's interesting. It's interesting you say that not only is it the quality, but also the stability of the record. Yeah, you've got thicker grooves, wider grooves, so there's less chance of that needle jumping, basically. So the the twelve inch is. Like the de facto format for disco, it's it's just the obvious choice because of all these kind of benefits that come from using that format in that space. Um, and double exposure's ten percent is actually the first ish, but the first commercially available 
12 inch that's out there 12 inch single I, 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 and so this this isn't my you know early 90s when indie bands would release a song and a 12 inch with with a longer version these were written and made as longer versions absolutely yeah like this is this is 1976 and this is designed to fill up a full side of music walter gibbons is arguably you know one of the kind of people who birth is the art birth is births birth is birthed i think it's birthed birthed um he biffed i've not even been drinking um <laughs> maybe you should <laughs> well the whiskey's behind me um he kind of births the idea of a remix with this and is is kind of really important in or starting to figure out this language of what it is to create a, a, an extended mix a, a kind of a remix and Walter Gibbons' remix of this is absolutely bonkers. The original track's great anyway, but um, you can kind of smell the start of house music in Walter Gibbons' remixes, even though it's like still you know eight, nine years away. And so, would you say? Would you say then that I mean, obviously, disco is a thing in itself, but from what I've heard so far, it seems to also be the genre that takes us from soul to house music whereas i would have imagined we just went from soul to house but oh, it's, disco seems to be that bridge it's the birth of dance music it is like absolutely the first dance music genre out there obviously people danced to stuff before you would have djs before you had um discos to do it in people would dance to a jukebox that's not a weird thing but it's kind of the birth of a dance music culture and that's where the slice is it's the first time we get people Dancing to discs. So, if we talked about this being the the birth um, of of dance music, of house music, and and people taking twelve inches and pe- things going onto twelve inches because it could withstand the rigors of of a bouncing dance floor, um, are we also talking about people now writing stuff? for the dance floor. You talked about the gospel break earlier on. That sounds like a sort of, oh, we're going to get people, we're going to bring, take them down, we're going to bring them back up, we're going to get them moving over, rather than just songs people dance to, as we, as we mentioned. Um, yeah, absolutely. We get this kind of period of quite kind of fertile experimentation. People are really kind of playing with structures. People, the extended mix, as well as the remix, but the extended mix or the extended version, or what you used to get on singles a lot was special disco edit. Um, these kind Ooh. of long-form remixes <laughs> or long-form edits of tracks. There's a really famous story, actually, which is when Tom Moulton is doing the extended remix of um, Glory Again as I Will Survive, I think it is. And it's like eight minutes mm-hmm. long, It's which by disco standards is like a fairly standard length. And Gloria says to Tom Moulton, she's like, I, I don't do anything for the middle four minutes. Is What am I going to do? He's like, just learn to dance. <laughs> was Moulton's rather pithy kind of fire off. Um, but, you know, like you look at Donna Summer, I Love to Love You, that's 16 minutes. Ridiculous. Is it? Yeah, it's the, the full version of um, Love to Love You, baby. Um, is maybe I, maybe minutes. I just haven't been, maybe I haven't danced to enough, you know, disco bangers in my, in my lifetime. Well, I, that's I, also I, so I, head, slow. <laughs> But it feels like an eternity. It feels like disco on ketamine. It's really difficult. <laughs> um, which is not which is not the drug I would have associated with, with disco. But we can probably come back and have we'll that come back conversation. To that, I'm sure. Later. <laughs> well, yeah. So to kind of go back to what you you, you question, like, yeah, it, it is where people are really starting to experiment and kind of expand what they're doing musically. But that kind of spirit that I was talking about earlier, that kind of joyous, melancholic kind of thing that thing about like family and harmony and that kind of slight hippie vibe kind of continues all the way through and it kind of really starts to feed into loads of disco and loads of music so you know like patty the bells the spirits in it or like edna holt which is like serious serious space party which is an absolute classic and you know gladys knight's friendship train and all of these tracks kind of start to feed off these messages and that length and that kind of long-form experimentation allows these things to get quite psychedelic. And I think the, the next track is a really good example of that. And it's um, Idris okay, Mohammed. Okay, and what is the next track? Idris Mohammed. Who is Idris? No, I'm just, I'm basically 
I'm basically talking over you with exactly do, what you're saying. Very <laughs> <laughs> um, I know, as a as a middle aged cis white man on, with a podcast, I'm I'm entitled to talk over everybody <laughs> and express and express my opinions. <laughs> um, so, who is Idris Mohammed? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> Probably don't ask. This, this was that. This, this was a long winded way to get nowhere. <laughs> okay, so why this track? Why um, this track? So yeah, Idris Mohammed with um, "Could Heaven Ever Be Like This." The reason I really dig this is because it it kind of connects with that that spirit that I was talking about and this kind of really unusual experimentation. This has got harp on it. Like the main riff for this is kind of played by this beautiful kind of dreamy harp. And if you think about what's going on at the time, you know this is kind of gospel music disguised as disco, being played to primarily like. Uh, people of color, like black, African American, Hispanic, gay men, and trans men, and trans women, and all of these kind of really diverse crowds, and people who are probably kind of maybe a little bit ostracized from their own communities because you know being gay was not particularly chill in the seventies, and so they come to places like the gallery and the loft and Better Days and uh, the Paradise Garage and all these beautiful clubs that kind of happen. Um, in fact, like the names of the clubs themselves, like Better Days and the Paradise Garage, and yeah, that's like that's emancipatory. It's uplifting. It's a really positive experience. And so you get these people coming to these places instead of going to church and finding the community that maybe they had in church, but in a different frame. And I think all of that is a long way of kind of saying that it's a song that's really kind of beautiful and really kind of sums up what was happening. On the kind of more, and this is a bit of an iffy word, but the more sort of authentic end of disco. Obviously, this is 77 and ABBA are waiting in the wings to ruin us all. But (laughs) there's still this kind of true, real cohort of original disco, you know, stakeholders, dancers, DJs, whatever you want to call them, um, who were kind of true to the original message. And this original idea of it being about, you know, fraternity and egalitarianism is basically France. Um... <laughs> <laughs> France, okay, that's all we remember. France is not bacon. France is disco. Yeah. That was a terrible joke. Um, so we're sort of piling through the 70s at the moment and, you know, uh, looking at de- various different facets of disco. But there is a giant Bianca Jagger on a white horse-shaped <laughs> elephant in a room Which, that we haven't touched <laughs> upon yet. Yeah, Sherry mentioned that, actually, didn't she, for the, the No Wave yeah, piece, yeah, I think? Yeah, the, uh, yeah. I, I, this is actually, that's actually a callback to the episode on New York No Wave with Sherry Amore. Um, go and listen to that one. But yes, um, Studio 54, disco, you know, all of, Saturday Night Fever. Where, I mean, if we were ignoring ABBA, mm-hmm. fine. But you know, I mean, I like to believe that movies have told me something. You, no, you are correct. And you know, we all want to see Ryan Philippe in gold shorts roller skating around Studio Fifty Four in the dreadful Fifty Four. If you have you seen that, Mike, Mike Myers, right? Yeah, as uh, Steve Rebell, the yeah. owner of uh, Fifty Four. Um, yeah, I saw it. Yeah, spectacular. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave my personal reveries out of it. Um, the yeah, we kind of need to talk about what happens in 1977 and 1978, which is the point where, and it kind of presents like an interesting uh, counterpoint to what we've just heard. It's the point where disco goes big, like overground. It's massive, and a couple of things happen. Disco starts to kind of wheedle its way out of New York City and kind of the major city centers into the suburbs and into kind of, you know, middle America, into kind of the local clubs. And it becomes this lifestyle that isn't, you know, about hedonism and freedom and emancipation and, you know, equality and fraternity and all of that stuff. It stops being that entirely. And in part, not entirely because of, but in part due to Studio 54, it becomes about presentation, it becomes about excess and decadence and about how much money you've got, it becomes about how well you dance. And the worst thing that happens to middle America is all of a sudden white guys are expected to dance. 
white straight men <laughs> have to dance. And this is, honestly, this is one of the most important turning points in all of disco. And it's all, mainly because of Studio 54. And because of the increasing, you know, degree of novelty songs on the radio, because of forgive Bee Gees, because of Saturday Night Fever, all of this stuff lands in 77, 78, and disco just explodes. It's just the biggest thing in the world. There's still tons of other little clubs knocking around New York, like um, Zenon and 2001 and Tamblaine, the Planetarium, Peter Rabbit, um, Galaxy 21, Starship Discovery, tons of clubs. But 54 is the one that seems to kind of hook the nation's attention. Um, so what was a cool fact, though. Um, in 78, Wigan Casino is voted a better club than Studio 54 by Time magazine. And Wigan Casino at the time was 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 still Northern Soul yeah. territory, right? Yeah. Um, oh, oh, by the way, if you know if any if any of the, any of the listeners have massive knowledge on Northern Soul, come on, I'd love to do Northern Soul. Oh, I've got um, exactly the person for you. Oh yeah, she literally oh, right. wrote the yeah. book. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We'll we'll have that conversation afterwards, and I should edit this out, but I'm not going to edit this out. Oh God, now so, promise something, but um, at least I've not said her name, so that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so Studio 54 is like the epitome of celeb stardom. It's it's basically like Love Island for celebs in 1978 and 77. Um, it's this kind of place where you can go, you can go up to the door. If you are cool enough, if you are trendy enough, if you are well-dressed enough or unique enough, Steve Rubell will let you into his playground for the night. And you can do coke off a one of the busboys buttocks you can see bianca jagger on a horse you can see rollerina flying around on her roller skates you can probably see michael jackson hanging out with truman capote in the oddest night of your life it's about exclusivity and it's about excess and it's about this kind of differentiation of almost class structures it's probably the closest america ever got to having a class structure um it's if 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 you ever go up the west coast of of America, just north of Santa Barbara, is a place called Hearst Castle. H e a r s t. William Randolph Hearst, mm. aka Citizen Kane. It was the house he built, and apparently that was where you'd, you'd have parties with, you know, Charlie Chaplin would rock up with future presidents, and they'd have, they'd go crazy, and it, that, it, that was the aristocracy of the West Coast. And this sounds like almost the aristocracy of New York, although it's it's not just about being famous. It, there's also about being, being cool or attractive or interesting. New York, it sounds like New York. Yeah, like there were, it, was, it was peak New York, but it was also kind of, it's no longer gritty and urban and, you know, this kind of democratized thing. It's really all about stardom you know there's like saudi princes who fly over in their private jet for the night and then fly back in the morning just to go to 54 because it is this kind of free playground of hedonism um but there's also kind of weird stuff that happens as a consequence of this like big popularization of disco um and the one i really like is like think about the lighting what do you reckon happens to the lighting in these things why is the lighting really special it's because what they end up doing is they put the lights on the audience. There's no lights on stage. Uh, okay. There's no lights on the DJ, really. Everything kind of flips, and the power and the kind of focus of everything is about the people dancing. It's not about, you know, watching someone on stage perform. It's not about the DJ performing. I know that's changed again now, unfortunately. But back in the, you know, in the 70s, the focus is on the crowd, and it's on, like, engagement and participation, and um, everyone kind of being part of this musical event. It's not a passive sport like most DJ sets are now. You're actively part of it. So the crowd officially, I mean, the crowd's always the product because obviously, you know, but the crowd becomes the product properly for the first time. In Studio 54, God, yeah, if you make it in Studio 4, you're probably not dancing. You're probably there just to eyeball all the famous people that are around. You're probably there to see who's the greatest dancer. You're probably there to see what goes on. There's a little bit of footage from inside Studio 54 still knocking around, um, and it looks incredible, you know, with like the the giant, huge kind of cutout moon on the wall and a spoon delivering coke up its nose. And yeah, it just looks like the most decadent experience. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull us back in for a second now because I'm also conscious some of our previous ep- my previous episodes have gone on for way too long. Right. And thank you for people who listen to them. No, 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 do not apologize. It's also my fault. But 
more importantly, what is the next track? Um, next track is the first track that was played at Studio Fifty Four. Oh, fantastic! And and like it's it's fine as an example of disco. It's a little bit novelty though, which I quite like as well because it kind of gives you a sort of sense of how much blood is in the water at this point. You know, you can kind of sense. You know, in less than eighteen months' time, disco's dead officially. You know, in the kind of summer of six, uh, summer of seventy nine, disco is about to die a kind of quite tragic death apparently um and so this is a track called devil's gun by cj and company i think it's quite a nice ominous portent of what's about to come as well so i mean a lot of scenes are yeah okay i'm i'm gonna be most musical scenes up until this point have been banned or singer you know, art solo artist orientated. Um, and obviously later on you got your rocks and you got your punks that comes immediately afterwards. It's it's bands and singers. Um this seems to be either individual music creators, I guess, putting stuff together, um, particularly after the soul becomes disco. Was it an was it an artist heavy scene or were there actually bands, not ABBA notwithstanding? It's a proper mixed bag of people. So you get quite a lot of bands in. You quite you get quite a lot of um, soloists in. But really, the thing that's kind of happening in the background is it's all being driven by specific producers and by specific labels. Like we kind of forget that you know Kiss did a disco record. Wait, 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 wait what now? I was made for loving you. Do I not know that? I don't it's know like that. The biggest my Kiss bro- song my ever. Brain. I was made for loving you, baby. Oh, was that Kiss? That's Kiss. That's a disco record. It's released on Casablanca, which is Donna Summer's record label. That single, like, financed most of Casablanca. So, yeah, it's absolutely bands doing stuff, but they're all being driven by production and kind of market trends in the background. Is it a really cynical scene? Like, is, is is it uber manufactured then? Yeah. It pains me to say it, but yeah, there's there's loads of um, stuff happening in the background that does come from a really cynical place. There's still amazing music out there. And to be honest, oh, I'm not going to say that. We'll come back to that. Um, there's... <laughs> <laughs> um, the... Oh, oh you, you have this devilish look on your face like you're hiding a secret that we're going <laughs> to we're gonna revisit later on. Um, all right. All right. So... Um... The, our next act, well, it sounds like a band. You're going to tell me it's just one DJ. We've got Voyage. Yeah, with a track called Souvenirs. Um, they're actually a, a French outfit, a French band. And at this point, you know, disco is not just a New York or like a States thing, but it's really kind of spun its tendrils out across kind of the globe. And Europe have grabbed hold of it with, you know, absolute desperation. And, you know, you get people like Giorgio Moroder, I Feel Love, when he's producing for Donald Summer, but you just get this host of disco coming out of Europe, particularly out of Italy and France. Not so much out of the UK. You get a lot of novelty garbage, a la the Nolans out of the UK, unfortunately. But um, get some, re- yes, correct face. Um, you get some really great disco. What you, what I probably kind of refer to as like high disco coming out of Europe. You know, this kind of that kind of goes back to those big luscious strings and that kind of that quite silky, sleek, sexy, big dramatic stuff. That you that I personally love out of disco anyway. Um. So you, uh, as I said earlier, on, you sent me through this list of tracks, and I was looking through, and I was like, I don't know this, I don't know this, I don't know this. I do know this one, and all <laughs> I'm going to say is, Liam, what the fuck? Um. So this is Ethel Merman's disco version of "There's No Business Like Show Business." Um, this is kind of one of the couple of examples that really comes up when people talk about like the death of disco. And I'll tell you about what that means in a second. But at this point in like 1978, 79, there is the worst disco being made in the world coming out of America. So you get stuff like this disco version of Ethel Merman. And I can't believe I'm even putting this whole track in, but it's shorter than some of the other garbage. So this is an example of disco at its lowest ebb. This is the absolute nadir of disco creatively, emotionally. Um, but it became this kind of fad that people did where they you know, they kind of pumped out just this slurry of disco novelty songs, so like Disco Duck, 
ABBA's Dancing Queen, you know, D-I-S-C-O. Um, Frank Sinatra did a disco version of Night and Day that is painful to listen to in 1977. Um, and then, yeah, Ethel Merman did this, and it's it's disgustingly poor. I mean, I'm guessing that the, by the time this stuff happens, and you can you can watch it in various scenes, you know, before or afterwards. You, there's probably a punk version. There's probably you know sort of a Britpop version. You know, I don't know when it. I don't know. I couldn't define a scene, but I know when it ended. Um, I imagine all the proper cool people around at the start of disco had already moved on. Probably not, because this stuff that's going on never really influenced them. This is the kind of trash that gets fed to that middle America where white guys are expected to dance to get girls. The guys who think that John Travolta is now what they're expected to look like. Those are the people for whom this slurry is directed. The people you know who dance into stuff like Idris Muhammad, they're fine. They're just cracking on. But all of this garbage reaches a kind of critical mass in early 79 and kind of erupts finally in one night in Chicago in July 1979 at this thing called Disco Demolition Night. Have you come across this? No, but it sounds terrible. It is. It's <laughs> awful. Um, so Disco Demolition Night is run by this, or put together by this DJ, radio DJ in Chicago called Steve Dahl. And Dahl kept losing his jobs on rock stations when the the radio stations changed to a disco-only program. And so on his um, KLUP, the Loop radio station, they kind of organized this kind of daft promotional event, which is an anti-disco protest, or Disco Demolition Night, as we now know it. And the idea was that everyone went down to Comiskey Park, which is one of the baseball grounds in Chicago. They bring records with them, and any record they want blown up, disco records, go in these giant dumpsters, and they blow them up in the middle of the two baseball matches that go on. Matches, regattas, galas, I don't know what a baseball match involves, but it was in the middle of two of them, that's all I can tell you. Um, And so, you know, the promotion's a bit iffy, but fine, but they do this explosion, they blow up these records, and chaos ensues, like everyone invades the pitch, they destroy the stadium, they set fires to stuff, people riot, and I think there's a huge amount of kind of arrests and kind of GBH that goes on. Loads of people are injured, and it's kind of deemed to be this kind of watershed moment that is the death of disco. So so, so we started by talking about the Stonewall Uprising, which was which was protests or you know and then described as riots but protests about the mistreatment of homosexuals in America um in the 50s 60s etc and now we've got people going to prison because someone blew up some disco records yeah but the people who were rioting were all on board with this i feel like i need to make that clear everyone who's rioting is there to riot like they're there for a kick around and it's kind of weird that you bring up Stonewall because it's almost a decade to the day that Stonewall kicks off to Disco Demolition Day. I think there's like a week and a bit in it. And so you have this kind of beautiful halcyon decade of disco and then it ends in this really unpleasant moment. And if you want to be kind of, you know, if you're going to compare those two events, which you kind of can do here, you want to be a bit simple, you want to be a bit simplistic about it, you can kind of do this dichotomy thing where it's, you know, like gay versus straight, disco versus rock white versus black, masculine versus feminine, male versus female. You know, I tell you something, if I'm making if I'm making this as a documentary, the opening credits are are Stonewall and the close credits are this. Mm. Absolutely. Like this is deemed to be the death of disco. The impact this have is massive. So when people see this happen, all the record labels in America start like dumping all their disco acts like they've gone off. And in the space of, uh, I think it's 11, no, in the space of 12 months, they lose 11% from the entirety of the US record industry. 11% of profit gets lost because of Disco Demolition Night, because they kind of see this as sort of like the, the watershed moment and everyone just goes, oh my God, no. Well, I mean, it, it just goes to show there is no business like show business. <laughs> 
so so disco's dead um punk's turned up killed it um house music's going to turn up hip hop's on it on the rise um all of the all of the flares have been put into the closets. Um, all of the the synth stabs and the strings and the Studio Fifty Four cocaines have, have 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 moved on. That's it, right? Disco's done. Yeah, totally. Because that's the narrative we get sold. That's absolutely. Probably until about like five six years ago, that was the accepted narrative that disco kind of died in about seventy nine. Um, as a weird kind of aside, do you know that Studio Fifty Four used to sell jeans? They used to sell Studio Fifty Four branded jeans. They're the ugliest things i've ever seen um but yeah that's the that's the accepted narrative like the disco dies at this moment everyone dumps their artist and that's where people like donald clark who we talked about at the start when he said it's this unfortunate fad those people kind of that's where they get their ammunition from from this kind of garbage that's coming out in 78 79 this novelty stuff but when you look at like what came out in 79 um actually i grabbed like proper back of a fag packet kind of thing. You get Dan Hartman's Relight My Fire with Alita Holloway on it, covered famously by Take That and Lulu, who's still alive, which always surprises me. Um, Donna Summer's Hot Stuff and Bad Girls. You get Sheik's Good uh, Good Times and Forbidden Lover. Sister Sledge's Thinking of You, which is arguably one of the greatest songs of the 20th century. Um, Glory Again is I Will Survive. Earth, Wind & Fire, September, and Boogie Wonderland and Sylvester's Mighty Real. All of those tracks came out in 79. So for me, that that that's what sounds like disco. I mean, just just give me just give me the nineteen seventy nine stuff. All the really great stuff, though, starts coming out like seventy eight, seventy nine onwards. Disco doesn't die, at, you know. In what is it, the July twelfth in seventy nine for the disco demolition night? That's not where disco ends in the slightest. Disco carries on beyond that point, and all that happens is we just don't call it disco anymore. We just start referring to it as dance music more broadly. And the people who felt or resented that they didn't want to dress up like John Travolta and go to the local nightclub didn't do that anymore. But the people who were kind of those key proponents and, you know, the kind of scene that sat underneath all the flashy stuff and all the rubbish novelty, all those people still keep going to clubs. All those people still keep dancing. You get slightly different tonalities kind of coming out of this stuff now. You get a little bit more electronic stuff, but it's still just disco. It's what we call now post disco, but that's like a label. I, did, I didn't realize. I didn't realize there was a post disco. I mean, I, I got bored of post punk uh, as, as a label. I didn't realize there was a post disco as yeah. well. But obviously, obviously there was. I'll come back and do post disco for you sometime. Like all the stuff that comes out <laughs> on um, like West End Records and stuff like that. It's beautiful music. Um, um, so if disco is not dead, and you've just wheeled off a, a, a list of cast iron bangers. What's next? Um, I'm going to play you uh, a track by Rainbow Brown, which is actually Fonda Ray in disguise, um, with a track called Till You Surrender, and it's actually on Vanguard, which is an incredible label that did loads of stuff kind of just at the death of disco, which we always have to put, like, quote marks, you know, <laughs> air quote marks around now, because it didn't die. Um, and it's called Till You Surrender, and it's 81 on Vanguard, and it's a great example of the fact that disco just stuck around. It didn't move. We just didn't call it disco anymore. It's dance music. All right. So, I mean, we we looked basically through the seventies um, at the rise, not and not so much fall, but but rebranding of, of disco. Um, what's its cultural legacy, um, and to this day? I mean, is it just dance music? Are there thing? Are there people putting out stuff that they call Disco. When I first said I'd do this, I thought what I might do is run, like, try and do one a year from Stonewall up until the death of disco and try and kind of encapsulate the story. But the fact that you cannot call 79 the end of disco and then you get into what we call the lost years, typically from like 79 to 84, um, which uh, Tim Lawrence has written an amazing book about. and then you get house music and techno and all of that stuff. It's all just dance music. It's all just kind of disco-derived stuff from that point onwards. Um, but, you know, in the in the kind of late 90s, I suppose, disco is probably at its dirtiest. It's most kind of loathed because it is ABBA, D-I-S-C-O, you know, those kind of novelty tracks. It's the Nolans. Friggin' Nolans. 
Um, it's all of that stuff. And then, you know, into the kind of the early noughties, we start to, DJs start to slowly reassess what was coming out of disco. It gets increasingly more sampled in like loads of house music, kind of tying it back to its roots. And now we're kind of at a point where we're just making disco again. There's labels, club nights, there's whole scenes kind of dedicated to the disco revival. There's disco revival. There's also new disco, which is, you know, bands like Crazy P and um, Lindstrom. Is that, N-U- are- is that N-E-W or N-U? N-U, unfortunately. Uh, why do they have to do that? I know. Um, but disco is kind of here. It's back. I don't know if it ever really went away. It probably got very, very quiet in the 90s, but it never really died. It just maybe went into hibernation a little bit. And then we kind of reassessed it. it there's a really famous quote by Frankie Knuckles, who's, you know, one of the earliest, one of the kind of earliest progenitors of house music. And he says that um, house music is disco's revenge. And I love that <laughs> as a idea, the idea that this kind of the DNA, that kind of lusciousness, that kind of soulfulness, that hedonism and that kind of celebratory stuff is in house music because of disco. And then, like this tune came out um, in 2020. This was like one of my big lockdown tunes, actually. <laughs> um, just dancing alone in a flat. Um, but this is undeniably disco. It's got big disco strings. It's got kind of big vocals. It's danceable. It's got that kind of melancholic joyfulness that you expect from disco. It's really bloody queer. It's it's just full of joy and Ooh. fun. And what is it? It's, What's the track? Um, it's actually the Shapeshifters, uh, famous for, was it Lola's theme? That was what they did kind of in the noughties, I think. Um, and Billy Porter of Pose fame. They did a tune in 2020 called Finally Ready. And this is the full extended mix because it's disco, so it's got to be the long version. <laughs> I thought I'd done it. I thought I'd got through an entire episode of, of MSG 10 without forgetting to, to do something before I moved on. I thought, yes, yes, you and you've got this. However, two segments ago, <laughs> uh, Liam researched on the internet and found the quote about the death of disco. And I, I, I moved us on. I moved us on. So we're coming back to say goodbye, essentially. So it's probably a good time to put this in. Um, before we say goodbye, Liam, could you could you could you read the quote about the death of disco, please? Um, yeah. So this is when Steve Dahl is just about to press the big kind of plunger to blow up all the records in Comiskey Park. He's stood in the middle of the pitch, green horse, diamond, I don't know, diamond, that thing, on a microphone, shouting at the crowd, and he's saying, you know, he's getting the crowd to chant along, saying "disco sucks, disco sucks," which was kind of the refrain of the night, uh, and then gets on the microphone and says, "Yeah, disco sucks." Um, Midwesterners don't want that intimidating lifestyle shoved down their throats. It's a bit much. And, you know, like, it, it, it's sort of like Disco Sucks is kind of a coded gay attack as well. And um, Nell Rogers, you know, of, um, obviously of Chic and everything, um, says that it's kind of reminiscent of like a Nazi-style book burning. It's like a Nazi culture camp for this moment where they just throw... It wasn't primarily Disco, it was just records by black artists into these bins to blow them up and yeah. it becomes really unpleasant and on that note <laughs> on that note on that note thank, first of all thank you very much Dr. Liam Maloney my pleasure um, I was I, I, I would have bigged up your, your podcast but your podcast um, Dancing About Architecture has wrapped up we have um, but hopefully by the time this comes out if not Definitely. You will have another one coming out soon, right? Yeah, it's going to be called Every Number One Ever, and we're going to be listening to... What's it about? Every Number One Ever. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when podcasts just say what they do on the tin. Just like, done. That's it. Um, we'll put we'll put links and whatnot in the thing about below. Um, Do you still tell people about your band camp? Do I have a band camp? Oh, yeah, I do. Um, Yeah, Um, (laughs) liamthomasmaloney.com. There you go. There's I see I did some research. There's a bank oh, camera, there's some electronic stuff on there. Leah Leah makes electronic music. Some of it's okay. Yeah, um, it's just all floaty <laughs> ambient bollocks, really. Um Liam, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for um basically improving my knowledge of what disco actually is. Um although some of those tracks were really fucking long. Um <laughs> Well, think about it, you you've had a lot of cocaine. 
you've you've probably dropped some acid and you're on a dance floor full of beautiful people. You want it to be as long as possible. And that is an image I'm going to leave you guys with. Um, <laughs> pop over to infrequency.co.uk. Join us next month, which I can't remember what we're doing next month, but there's stuff. Listen to stuff. It'd be great to see you. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.